Blog Talk Radio. Carolinas to the world via the World Wide Web. This is Redeeming Truth Radio, and this is your host for the next 30 minutes as we seek to take an expedition for truth. Yours truly, Pastor Brian Chilton. Uh, this is a completely live show today, uh, and, and normally what I'll do is I'll have um, uh, my professional microphone that I use to record portions of the podcast, and then we'll upload that. Uh, to the podcast to have, see that you have a better and more clear um, product in the end. And I found that uh, the sound uh, is much better and, and, than it is just by calling in as I'm doing right now. However, there, uh, this is Holy Week, and, uh, and there goes the clock. Of th- <laughs> that clock every hour goes off. I need to find a way of shutting that thing up. But anyhow, um, this is Holy Week. This is... Uh, the most important week of the entire year, in my opinion, as it recounts the last week of Jesus. Uh, of course, Friday, this Friday, uh, being Good Friday, is the uh, day that Jesus was crucified. Thursday, many people call that Maundy Thursday, uh, which we're having a service at our church at uh, Huntsville Baptist this Thursday, at Maundy Thursday's service. Uh, which uh, represents gloomy Thursday. It's the night that uh, the Last Supper took place and, um, you know, and recounts the Garden of Eden and things of that nature. So uh, this is Holy Week. Uh, each day has great importance this week. And so uh, ultimately leading up to Easter Sunday, which will be coming up this Sunday, hope uh, hope that you'll be in service somewhere uh, worshiping uh, the risen Savior, and that's that's why we have uh, a Christian faith to begin with, because Jesus has risen from the tomb, uh, that he is not dead, but he is alive. And that is the great truth that separates Christianity from every other worldview. Uh, you take a look at any other founder of any other religion, uh, the corpse of that person is still in the tomb, Whereas Jesus, uh, the the Son of God, is risen, and is uh, as we as Christians know, has ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father for all eternity. So um, great news. That's why we call this the good news, which is in fact the gospel. Uh, a couple of notes before we begin get really involved in today's show. As uh, uh, obviously that was one change. We're live. The second change is is that if you're listening to us live, you know we're coming to you a lot earlier than we normally do, coming to you at 9 a.m. Um, 
daylight say Eastern daylight savings time. Uh, that would be earlier for our friends in the at the Pacific West Coast. Um, we're gonna, we're kind of going to test around some different times to see uh, what this how this works. We're looking to after Easter, uh, looking at changing the format of the show entirely. Uh, as you know, the website has changed names uh, to its regular name, Bellator Christie at bellatorchristie.com, Latin for Soldier of Christ. And uh, we're going to change the name of this podcast to correlate with the uh, website as well. So this will be called Bellator Christie Radio sometime after Easter. So um, it won't happen this week, but sometime after Easter. In fact, it may be as early as next Monday, uh, but chances are likely it will be the Monday after next that we're going to switch names. Uh, the format a little bit. I haven't decided on whether we're going to change the live show, which, of course, this won't affect you if you're listening, as the majority of our listeners do, to the recorded podcast. It won't affect you at all except for the availability of the show. Uh, I'm leaning towards keeping it on Mondays, uh, but we may tweak the times. Uh, in fact, if this 9 o'clock spot works well, we may look at uh, having it at 9 a.m. So... Um, so we're going to look at some different times, different dates. Uh, I'm going to kind of gauge that as we move forward. Uh, and so uh, there you have it, Bellator Christie Radio. This uh, Redeeming Truth will be no more. It will be known as Bellator Christie Radio uh, or the Bellator Christie Podcast, uh, most likely Bellator Christie Radio. But that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll make that format change. Uh, one other thing needed to note, uh, as I noted last week, uh, any advertisements that you hear before the show is not sponsored by this podcast. Uh, anything you find after the introduction of the show is, okay? So just so that you know uh, if there's an advertisement for a political candidate, uh, that political candidate candidate is not necessarily sponsored by or endorsed by this podcast, just so you know. All right, with that being said, I'm going to uh, go to a quick commercial break, and this commercial is one that I do, uh, in fact, endorse, and that is for this upcoming conference this October at, uh, called the National Conference of Christian Apologetics. We'll be right back right after this commercial break. Southern Evangelical Seminary presents The Defense Never Rests, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, coming to Charlotte, North Carolina, October 13 through 15, 2016. Come be equipped to defend the faith. This three-day event features over 100 sessions from more than 50 speakers, including many of the world's top Christian thinkers, such as Lee Strobel, author of many books, including The Case for Christ, Jay Sekulow, chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, SES co-founder Norman Geisler, and SES president Richard Land, veteran apologist Josh McDowell, Frank Turek, Jay Warner Wallace, SES professors, and many more. Join us for America's largest and longest-running apologetics conference. Thursday is a dedicated day for women only. Register now and save. It's time to get off the sidelines and get into the game. The defense never rests. To learn more, visit ses.edu. Southern Evangelical Seminary. On campus, online, on mission. All 
All right, today we are going to take a look uh, at, a, at what will probably be a three-part series. If you are looking at bellatorchristi.com, uh, you can see the uh, articles for this, uh, which the articles are going to go more in-depth than what we have time to do so today. But we're going to talk about today the case for the empty tomb. Um, and uh, historical scholarship uh, agrees, and, and you may find this interesting, that conservatives and liberals alike agree on many aspects of the historical life of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, evangelicals are going to be open, evangelical scholars are going to be open to all the aspects of Jesus' life, uh, but those who are more liberal, who operate by the naturalistic human philosophy that you can only trust the senses, uh, that uh, things operate today as they have always operated, and, and that, um, uh, in their opinion, miracles don't happen, and so on and so forth, uh, they're not going to be as open to some of the aspects of Jesus' life as it is recorded in the Gospels as evangelical uh, scholars will. But surprising as it may seem, several aspects of the life of uh, death and even apparent resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth are agreed upon by the majority of New Testament scholars, both evangelical and secular alike. In his book, The Historical Jesus, Gary Habermas, Liberty Professor and uh, one of the preeminent scholars on the resurrection of Jesus, uh, says gives what he calls the 12 minimal facts about Jesus to which nearly all scholars agree. But he notes that, um, and he and even limits this down to five um, core essentials, that Jesus was crucified, uh, that he absolutely died, you know, on the, on the, uh, on the Roman cross. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, that, uh, that, that he was uh, buried by uh, Joseph of Arimathea, but, that, but also but, uh, but that he died, that was a core essential. You also have to account for the fact that you have uh, Paul, who was an enemy of the Christian faith, came to faith in Jesus. You have James, the brother of Jesus, who thought Jesus was a few French fries short of a happy meal uh, in his earthly ministry, but came to faith in Jesus. Uh, you have the disciples who were all saying that they see Jesus alive, which that's agreed upon, and even the majority of scholars will agree that there was an empty tomb. But, but Habermas admits that the empty tomb is not as widely accepted, even still, Many scholars hold that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered to be empty just a few days later, end of quote. So my question is this. Why is the empty tomb not as widely accepted? I mean, it only stands to reason that if they believed Jesus had raised from the dead, then surely there had to be an empty tomb. And the, and the Gospels clearly state that the tomb was empty. For instance, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 1 and following, he notes that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. By the way, women were the first to see Jesus alive. That's phenomenal. Historically speaking, that's phenomenal because women were not as highly as accepted as they are today in ancient times. So to have women as being the first witnesses of the risen Jesus, that, uh, that's not something you would make up in ancient times. So, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which in John's gospel, that's his way of identifying himself 
John the Apostle, who is, in fact, the writer of this text. I believe he's a writer of this text. In fact, I think internally and externally, the evidence for John, uh, contrary to what some people say, I think it's quite strong that John the Apostle wrote this uh, book. Anyhow, he goes on to say to them that... Uh, that uh, said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, being John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, being John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So clearly we see this eyewitness testimony from John the Apostle an eyewitness, even those who don't accept John as the writer, which I think is absolutely no offense to anyone, I think it's absolutely ludicrous to deny John the Apostle authorship of this book when he basically clearly tells you uh that it's him and in fact whenever he um whenever he uh uh pinpoints all the disciples, John is the only one who's not mentioned, and that disciple is mentioned as a disciple whom Jesus loves, and he goes later in the book to say this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the disciple who's writing these things to you so that you may believe. Uh, I, I think that's clear. I, I think sometimes people, I'm not going to say think too much, but I think they uh, try to make, for some reason, uh, they become too skeptical of the idea that the apostles wrote these things. I don't know why, because why wouldn't they? If they really accepted them, why wouldn't they write these things? So anyhow, that's my little rant for now. But uh, it's, it's amazing to me that, that the empty tomb, even though it is held by the majority of scholarship, that it's not as widely a held fact by scholars as other aspects uh, of Jesus' life. Um, William Lane Craig even notes that if the burial story is basically accurate, the site of Jesus' tomb would have been known to Jews and Christians alike. By the way, historically speaking, that is true, because when Constantine's mother... I think Veronica is her name. She went in the 300s looking for the tomb of Jesus. They basically, everyone knew where it was, where it was located. Even the Romans knew where it was located because they had defiled it by placing a statue of Venus over top of the tomb. So it was no, they knew in this time, they knew in the 300s where the tomb was located. Why wouldn't they know where the tomb was located in the first century? It makes no sense. But basically what we're going to look at over this and the next couple of weeks is uh, we're going to defend the hypothesis that the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was empty on the first Easter morning, demonstrating that it coincides with the notion that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead in a physical and literal body. Now, in order to do this, we need to look at several different things. Uh, We need to look at the theological aspects, the theological reasons for holding that the tomb was empty. We're going to look at um, um, the church's early church's belief that the tomb was empty. We're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to uh, see whether it was a um, whether it was empty or later fabrication, as some argue. We'll look at that, uh, and then we're going to look at several different things. But today we want to look at a couple of things. We want to first of all look 
at the arguments against the empty tomb hypothesis, uh, what are some of the arguments posed against the empty tomb, and then we're going to see how, how they don't pan out at all, if, if you're going to be honest with the evidence. And then we're also going to take a look at the historical reasons for believing that the tomb of Jesus was found empty that first Easter morning. So, many, again, as we mentioned before, many scholars concede that the disciples saw something on the first Easter Sunday morning. Um, but most scholars believe that Mark's gospel uh, ended with verse 8, where they go out fleeing from the tomb, trembling in astonishment, had to seize them, and they had nothing. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So they still left out the tomb, left out from the tomb, noting that the tomb was empty. Okay, but uh, you see several proposals given by skeptics saying, "Well, you know, we we believe they saw something, maybe a hallucination or something like that, but we don't believe the tomb was empty." Well, how can they say that? Well. The first theory against the empty tomb is, quite frankly, the oldest. It's called the conspiracy by the Christians. Matthew records that some of the soldiers who witnessed the resurrection came to Jesus's, to, excuse me, came to Jewish elders and told them what had occurred. The leaders all said, "Tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep." And we find that in Matthew 28:13. Now it's difficult to fathom, first and foremost that a ragtag group of scared, unarmed disciples, although they may have had a sword, uh, but against the armor of Roman soldiers, against the training and expertise of Roman soldiers, would not have been effective. In fact, a guard normally consisted of 12 Roman soldiers. When they say go place a guard, that guard is a unit, military unit of soldiers, which is about... 12 people. You have four on one side, four facing forward. Uh, uh, you have four, let's limit. Uh, excuse me, 16. I gave you the wrong number. 16. You have 16 soldiers instead of 12. You have four facing forwards. You have four facing to the right. You have four resting in front of the, the place that they're guarding, and you have four facing to the left. Now, every few hours, they would rotate. Okay, the ones who were sleeping in front of the tomb, they would get up and go to the left side. The ones on the front would go to the right. The ones on the right, they would take a break for a little while. So they would alternate. They would rotate. So you had 12 to 16 soldiers guarding this thing. Okay, How are, how are a group of ragtag disciples with no armor whatsoever want to stand against highly trained Roman soldiers? It makes no sense. The, resur the resurrection, as one finds in the New Testament, was not even anticipated in the era of Second Temple Judaism, which was the time of the church, uh, the first century church. N.T. Wright notes that the resurrection, in its literal sense, belongs at one point on a much larger spectrum of Jewish beliefs about life after death. In its political metaphorical sense, it belongs to the spectrum of views about which future, which Yahweh was promising to Israel. The hope that Yahweh would restore Israel prom provided the goal. So politically speaking, they were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They didn't even understand that. John even says that in the passage of Scripture we just read. They didn't even realize that that's what Jesus was addressing until after the resurrection took place. Uh, also, conspiracies generally collapse when the conspirators are challenged. J. Warner Wallace, a former atheist homicide detective turned Christian apologist, 
notes that successful conspiracies share the following attributes, and I quote, one, a small number of conspirators, uh, two, thorough and immediate communication, three, a short time span, four, significant relational connections, five, little or no pressure. He adds later that the ideal conspiracy would involve only two conspirators, and one of the conspirators would kill the other right after the crime. That's a conspiracy that would be awfully hard to break, he says. So a conspiracy is not as easy to pull off as many people think, as Jay Warner Wallace tells us. And he's had a substantial, he's had substantial um, experience with this. And he, again, says it needs to be a small number of conspirators. You don't have that with the early church movement. You have a lot of people saying they saw Jesus alive. Thorough and immediate communication, well, they were spread out eventually spread out all over the place, short time span. No, this was consistently uh, being told to people that Jesus had risen. Significant relational connections. Well, there were some people who were related, but the majority of them weren't. Little or no pressure. Well, let's just say this. All the people who said they saw Jesus alive, save maybe John the Apostle, died by crucifixion, died by being burned alive, died by being eaten by wild beasts, uh, died by being speared, and they all had three chances to recant their faith, and none of them did. Folks, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like any conspiracy that I've ever heard about. How about you? So the conspiracy theory falls apart. Secondly, uh, there are some people who believe that Jesus was never buried. There was no empty tomb because he was buried. Bart Ehrman, uh, professor at UNC Chapel Hill, one reason I don't pull for UNC Chapel Hill anymore, uh, but anyhow, uh, Ehrman eludes the problems found with the stolen body theory by promoting the idea that Jesus was never buried in the first place. He thinks that, um, and I quote, Ehrman believes, and I quote, that, with a, that uh, scholars must decipher the Gospels with a critical eye determine which stories and which parts of stories are historically accurate with respect to the historical Jesus and which represent later embellishments by his devoted followers. As it pertains to the empty tomb, Ehrman is led to believe that Jesus was never buried and that uh, that most people, as John Dominic Croson uh, even believes, that Jesus was either buried in a shallow grave, probably eaten by dogs is what Croson believes, or he was never taken down from the cross. Okay. Suffice it to say, it seems unreasonable that disciples would invent a tomb that could be verified by the people living in that time. It makes no sense whatsoever. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, uh, contains early eyewitness testimony. <laughs> Got a text from a friend of mine that says, we know that you're still a big Heels fan. Sorry, buddy. Now I can't say that I am anymore. <laughs> Too many things have gone under the water. We'll say that. <laughs> but anyhow... First uh, Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8 contains early eyewitness testimony that actually predates the New Testament and actually dates, and this is agreed upon by all scholars, liberal and conservative alike, that it dates to the very earliest times of the church, at least three to five years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and most will even say that it dates back to the time of Jesus. Well, what does this say? It says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. So that theory falls apart. 
Well, there's another theory that's, uh, uh, that postulates that they just went to the wrong tomb. Uh, they didn't know which tomb to go to, so they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, listen, this is foolishness. This is absolutely a foolish theory, and I'll tell you why. Because when the disciples started saying, hey, we've seen Jesus alive, you know what the Romans and Jews would have done? More likely the Romans. Well, both of them probably would have gone together, the authorities, that is. All they had to do was go to the right tomb and expose the body and say, hey, here he is. Guess what? Christianity dead. As soon as they done that, as soon as they started preaching this gospel, which was opposed by the Jewish authorities, opposed by the Roman authorities, all they had to do was expose the right tomb, and that would have been the end of Christianity. Because Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus. I don't think Joseph of Arimathea nor Nicodemus were there. In fact, I think there were probably some in the Sanhedrin who supported Jesus. This was a monkey trial when Jesus was condemned. It didn't ha they didn't have everyone in the Sanhedrin necessarily there, but all of those who were there were enemies of Jesus, and all of those who were there, all of the council who were there condemned Jesus. So obviously Joseph of Arimathea, uh, I think being true to the Sanhedrin, I don't think uh, there had to be a conspiracy there at all, but I think uh, they would obviously have shown, or everybody would have known, they didn't have to tell them. Everybody would have known where Joseph of Arimathea's Thea's tomb was located. It would be like a Rome. It would be like a uh, the house of a of a governor or or a, the mansion of a president or or something like that. Everyone would have known where this tomb was located. So it falls apart. It absolutely falls apart. Well, looking at the different theories that exist, okay. What is the evidence that we have that Jesus was buried according to what the Bible tells us? Well, there is good historical evidence. As we noted uh, earlier in, in, our, in our podcast, there are several theories out there that state that Jesus was not buried as the Bible tells us he was, and we see that those theories basically fall flat on their face. Okay. Um, there are historical reasons for believing in the empty tomb. The gospel, if the Gospels are correct and that the tomb was truly empty on the first Easter Sunday, then one would expect to find that the ancient burial practices of first century Judaism would match the type of burial that's presented in the Christian tradition. Did people in first century Palestine bury their dead, uh, bury their dead in tombs uh, like the new tomb cut in the rock? Well, um, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. The canonical gospels, the canonical gospels account of Jesus' burial indeed matches the burial practices of first century Palestine. Elwell and Biasol note that the bodies were buried in tombs, that is, natural caves or, or rock-hewn sepulchers, such as that belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, where the body of Jesus was laid as well as in shallow graves covered with rock heaps serving both to mark them and to prevent desecration of body by animals. So even if they were to have buried Jesus' body in a shallow grave, they would have rocks and things of that nature on the grave to keep animals uh, out. Okay, and, th and that was explicitly for the ultra poor who would have buried in that matter. Joseph of Arimathea, though, if it's true that he, that he used his own 
uh, tune, which why would they make that up? I mean, if, you know, by the time most of this was written, you know, this was a time, a period, in period of time where Joseph of Arimathea must was probably still alive. So why would they make that up? Okay. So anyhow, if Jesus had been buried in a shallow grave, the practices of, of the time did not readily allow easy access to predators. But as it was noted earlier, it's highly unlikely that the gospel writers would invent Joseph of Arimathea. Therefore, it's highly unlikely that the evangelists would invent the empty tomb, especially due to the use of rock-hewn tombs uh, at the time. Now, N.T. Wright also notes that the burial so carefully described in the Gospels was, as we would expect to see in first-century Palestinian Judaism, the initial stage of a two-stage burial practice. Let me just go on. We're running out of time. Let me just go on to say that uh, burial practices in ancient times were a little bit different than what we have now. They would have the first burial in which they would place the um, body of the deceased in this rock-hewn tomb, and what they would do is they would seal up this this tomb. Now, a year later, they would give a year's time, and this is kind of nasty, but they would give a year's time to allow the body to decay, where it would be nothing, where there would be nothing left except for the bones. They would take the cross that they buried the body, and they would have a second burial a year after the person deceased. They would take the the bones of the person, whatever was left of them, and put it in an ossuary, which is a burial box. If you go and look at my latest article, I have a uh, picture of the ossuary that belongs to James, the brother of Jesus. Okay, so they would take the body, they would they would put it in this ossuary, and in fact, they may even put several bodies in this ossuary. Like if you were married and you had kids. You may have a family ossuary, okay, where where your loved ones would pour all the bones together in this box, a burial box, in anticipation that all of you and your family would be resurrected in the end times, uh, not as Jesus was, but uh, in, in this present time, but during the end time that everyone would rise together, okay. So the burial of Jesus matches perfectly with practices in ancient times, okay. History also, now what about the Romans? Now, Mark Ehrman argues that Romans would have never given clemency to allow someone, to allow a family to bury a loved one. Well, history, uh, or, yeah, to bury a loved one, they would never have given a body over to someone to be buried while hanging on the cross. Oddly enough, history demonstrates that the Romans often granted clemency under certain circumstances. Craig Evans notes that Septimus Vegetus, governor of Egypt, Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, and an inscription from Ephesus all demonstrate that Roman officials often provided various acts of clemency towards various condemned individuals. Evans goes on to say, this mercy at times extended to those who had been crucified. Clemency sometimes was occasioned by a holiday, whether Roman or a local non-Roman holiday, or simply out of political expediency. Whatever the motivation, we actually have evidence that Roman justice not only allowed for the executed to be buried, but it even encouraged it in some instances, especially in areas that were hot spots where they were afraid that uh, that there could be a rebellion or insurrection, something of that sort. 
Therefore, one will find that history provides ample evidence that not only did Palestinian Jews bury in accordance to the method prescribed by the evangelists, but also that the Romans provided clemency for the body of the condemned to be given to the family to bury. Uh, if one remembers that the crucifixion of Jesus occurred during Passover, when the bodies of the condemned were not allowed to remain on the cross, as we find in John 19.31, then the empty tomb hypothesis gains further merit. So we have seen here that the opposing viewpoints against the empty tomb falls flat on their face. And by the way, there are more there are more um, theories out there than just what I've mentioned, but all of them, just like the ones we mentioned, fall flat on their face. We even see that there is historical evidence that the Romans allowed the condemned to be the bodies of the condemned to be given over to family and friends after they died on the cross. So so I think the evidence thus far has been very strong in favor of the empty tomb, that the tomb of Jesus was literally found empty on the first Easter morning. Now, next week, we're going to look at the biblical argument for accepting the empty tomb hypothesis. Does the Bible say that the tomb was empty? We looked at one such passage, but what about other passages of Scripture? We're going to take a look at that next week. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we went a little bit over time, and hopefully uh, you've enjoyed uh, participating in this. Uh, we uh, hope uh, you will find great blessings uh, upon you, being upon you this Easter Sunday, and we do highly encourage you to to go take part in the worship somewhere. Worship the risen Savior, because this is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. We're, we're worshiping, in fact, a risen Savior who's still alive today as he was back in 33 A.D. Well, may God richly bless you and keep you. This is Pastor Brian uh, Chilton for Redeeming Truth Radio. We'll see you back here next week.